The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 3, 1-17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to to Christ. Christ. Thanks again, Clara Beth. Great job. Uh, We are beginning our new series. I'm excited about this one. Uh, The series is called Encounters with Christ. It's going to be a walk through the the four Gospels and especially the different uh, person-to-person encounters that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, uh, had with different kinds of people coming from different kinds of perspectives and life experiences. And the first one is this famous encounter with a man called Nicodemus that we're referring to today as the disoriented pillar. And what we're going to talk about specifically is what it means to be born again. And uh, you hear those words and it might trigger you. And you might be saying to yourself, oh great, I just joined Christ Presbyterian Church and now you're telling me that This is one of those churches, those born-again type churches. And uh, when you hear that phrase, your guard might go up. You might think of born-again Christianity as a certain brand or a certain sect of the Christian tradition instead of it being part of the essence of Christianity. Uh, You know, over here you've got Roman Catholic Christianity, and over here you've got Presbyterian Christianity and Methodist Christianity, Episcopalian uh, Christianity, non-denominational Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity, all these different brands. And then at the bottom of 
the lake is those born-again types. The caricature is that of emotional instability, uh, being out of touch, rudeness, narrow-mindedness, being extreme, being bigoted, uh, being hypocritical. And so, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I'll give you the bad news. The bad news is that Jesus said, you cannot be a Christian unless and until you've been born again. You can't. It's impossible. You can't see the kingdom of God unless or until you have first been born again. Now, that's the bad news, but it's not really bad news because of the good news. And the good news is that the born-again experience, rather than being congruent with, is actually the opposite of the caricature. It's the opposite of emotional instability and being out of touch and rude and narrow-minded and extreme and bigoted and hypocritical. It's the opposite of those things. People who have been born again are people who've come alive. The highest form of what it means to be the creation of God is a born-again believer in Christ. Highest form, not in the, the, not in the sense of being superior, but in the sense of being authentic, living with integrity, living your life energized and bolstered by truth and beauty everywhere you go, in all the places where you live, work, and play. And so let's talk about the new birth under four headings. It's a universal need. It can't be bought or accomplished. It can only happen to us, and it's an act of God that recreates us. And so let's start with this. The new birth is a universal need. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, the word you is plural. And so he's speaking to a group of which Nicodemus is representative. All of you, all of your type, must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. And so who were Nicodemus' people? They were people who had power. Nicodemus is a member of a group called the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling council. It was the highest legislative body in, Ju in Judaism. Uh, you had the power of all three branches in this one group of people. You had the executive, the legislative, and judicial power all there in the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus's people had morals. Nicodemus, it says, was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were widely known and esteemed as pillars of the community. Uh, they kept their word. They paid their taxes. They were people of impeccable uh, integrity. They read their Bibles and sought diligently to apply their lives to what they read or what they thought they read in their Bibles. Nicodemus' people were also sophisticated. He was very likely a scholar. Notice that Jesus doesn't call him a teacher of Israel. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. Probably had an elite education, probably was from a prominent family. How do I know this? Because he's a Jewish man, but he's been given a Greek name. And this is what upper-class parents did with their sons. When a son was born, they would give him a Jewish name. They would also give him a Greek name. 
It's very likely also that Nicodemus was educated in the most elite private schools of his city and of his day. His people also had wealth. Chapter 19, I'll I'll touch on this a little bit later in the message, but uh, you'll see there that Nicodemus and another friend of his named Joseph used their private funds to purchase a very expensive gravesite or tomb to lay the body of Jesus inside of. It was a tomb fit for a king. And so if you're to take Queen Elizabeth, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, and Jeff Bezos. Put them all in a blender, stir it up, mix it up, and out would come Nicodemus and Nicodemus's type. It's a universal need. Even that person cannot get anywhere with God unless they're first born again. So, the new birth is also something that can't be bought or accomplished. In verse 2, he, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, that's a term of respect, especially when he's speaking to a man who had no formal education and yet recognize that Jesus has a lot of wisdom to share. He comes to him at night and says, Rabbi, we know. So, clearly, Nicodemus and his people have been talking with each other about Jesus. We know. We've come to the conclusion. We've arrived at the notion that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do all of these signs that you're doing unless God is with him. Now, this begs the question, why would a high-profile, smart, widely esteemed, wealthy elite seek out a poor, uneducated woodworker in the middle of the night for wisdom about the meaning of life. You know, he has it all. He has power, he has morals, he has sophistication, he has wealth. And there's still an emptiness there. There's still something that is lacking. He's like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus in another episode and said, Lord, I've done everything. I've kept the law. I've I've, I've, I've been an upstanding citizen. I've made a lot of money. It's like the Mark Zuckerberg of his time, perhaps, or the Elon Musk. He says to Jesus, the rich young ruler does, what do I still lack? You can have everything and still feel like you have nothing. And you can conversely have nothing and feel like you have everything. I'll get to that in a minute, too. But it's poverty of spirit that drives Nicodemus to come in the secrecy and the quiet and the darkness of the night and ask Jesus for some insight. Nicodemus is the personified version of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, where where, where Jesus said, it's possible to gain the whole world but lose your soul. You know, Ernest Hemingway, the esteemed novelist, said that happiness in intelligent people is the rarest thing that I know. You know, Bertrand Russell, a famous philosopher, and Albert Einstein, a famous scientist, came up together with what uh, became known as the Russell-Einstein Manifesto. It was, it was released uh, in 1955 during the Cold War. 
And one of the conclusions that this esteemed philosopher and scientist arrived at together is this, and I quote, we have found that the men who know the most are the most gloomy. Then uh, Louis C.K., several years ago on Conan O'Brien, this was a few days before he would attend uh, the Emmy Award ceremony for which he had been nominated for four Emmys, says to the talk show host, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. Life is tremendously sad. And then Brad Pitt, in a, an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, said, all of these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our versions of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? We've got to find something else because we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. It doesn't help you sleep any better. That's the Hollywood version of all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You can build your whole life successfully around the acquisition of power, the cultivation, the cultivation of morals and sophistication, and the accumulation of wealth. You can, you can succeed at all. You can accomplish and even exceed all of your wildest dreams the wealth, the fame, the VIP access, and conclude it's a dead end because all you're left with is yourself, you and your thoughts. You know, there's a lot of disenchantment these days with the powerful, prestigious male, but maybe, at least in Nicodemus's case, the powerful, prestigious male is somebody who deserves our pity, not our envy. Louis C.K. is in a lot of trouble these days. Ernest Hemingway took his own life. Brad Pitt is the furthest thing from happy. Power can be a disadvantage. Power can impair your vision for things that you desperately need to see the most. Unless you are born again, all of you, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. But if you turn to the right one chapter, to chapter 4, you've got this woman who is the opposite of Nicodemus. He is a powerful, prestigious male. She is a poor, discarded woman who has been taken advantage of now by five men. Jesus gives the same message to her in different words, but the same message 
you know, you've given me a glass of water, now I'm going to tell you about the kind of water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. I am the living water. I am the living water. You drink of me, you will never thirst again. And what does she do? She starts skipping into town, shouting for anybody who will will hear, including powerful, prestigious men like Nicodemus and like Joseph of Arimathea, saying, come and see, you blind people, come and see. I've seen it, and you can see it too. This man told me everything that I ever did. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the one that Moses and the law and the prophets and everything that you've diligently studied all your lives are all pointing to? World without end. Come and see. It's a universal need. It can't be bought or accomplished. And third, the new birth can only happen to you. It can never be done by you. You must be born again is not a command for people to obey. It's a condition into which people are born. The verb structure is passive. There are no imperatives here. It is a description of what happens when God gives you new birth. The Holy Spirit is the actor. Human beings are the recipients. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you were dead. Not sick, not weak, not weary, not incapacitated, dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. Two most important words in the history of the world. But God made you alive. By grace, you've been saved. When a baby is born, the kid does nothing, the mother does all the pushing and all the bleeding. Birth is a traumatic experience. If you've ever been part of a birthing experience, I assume all of you have because all of you have been born. It's rarely neat. It's rarely tidy. It's always messy. It's always disruptive. It's always risky. Some people die in the process of giving birth. Some people die in the process of being born. Verse 8 Jesus uses the metaphor of the wind. He says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. In other words, it's out of your control, just like the new birth. The wind blows anywhere it wishes. This is the Greek word pneuma. We get our word pneumonia from this word. And that word also means spirit. The words are interchangeable in the Greek. The wind can have a refreshing quality. I hope we get some wind at the party on the lawn because there's sun and no cloud coverage today. I hope we've got some wind. This gentle breeze that makes us feel good on a hot day, that's a pretty good description of the conversion experience of the woman at the well. You know, people who are poor, disadvantaged, overlooked, unseen, behind in life, tossed out and discarded, this is why the gospel has historically been so attractive, immediately so, to that person. Are you telling me my sins can be forgiven? You're telling me that all of the regrets of my past can be 
erased and not held against me? You're telling me that I've got a, a future? Are you kidding me? And then you skip into town and you tell everybody? You know, because you tell everybody about what's meaningful to you, right? You tell everybody about what's changed your life. But the wind isn't just refreshing. It can also be catastrophic, like a tornado or like a hurricane or like my backyard yesterday. I can't even control a leap. The one who made the stars sneezed from 10 billion miles away and I can't keep the leaves in the bag because of his sneeze 10 billion miles away. That's, I'm, I'm not speaking literally there, but you get the point. God is so big and I'm so little. He makes the wind. He governs the wind. And I just am here to submit to the wind because there's nothing else to do but submit to it. You know, the tornado uproots and replants, and that's the Nicodemus experience. Everything is turned upside down and backwards. Maybe that's why he's so measured. Maybe that's why he's so curious. Maybe why there's this ring, there, it's why there's this ring of skepticism while, while the woman at the well is leaping and dancing into town, believing everything that she's heard on the spot, questioning nothing. Could this be the Christ? Better believe it could be. Nicodemus asks Jesus for teaching. But when you're born with the Spirit, when you're born of the Spirit, it's not teaching that God gives you. Spiritual rebirth means crush and rebuild. Demolish and renovate. C.S. Lewis says, most of us, we want God to fix the roof on our cottage. But God wants to turn that cottage into a castle, into something much bigger and grander than we ever dreamed. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. And what happens when the old is gone and the new has come for Nicodemus or for the woman at the well? Your posture toward the things of God changes. When you were dead in your transgressions, you were apathetic toward the things of God, toward His Word, toward His ways, toward His grace, toward His commands, toward His people. You had little to no appetite for any of it. It was just kind of off the radar for you. But when you became born again, you started to need it like food. You developed this hunger. You developed this thirst for things that you never hungered and never thirsted for before. You know, I was having a conversation with a member of our church a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me, this is a, this is a top-level organizational leader in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the most significant leaders in our city. And he was telling me about how he was going to be out of town the following weekend. And I said, oh, you get to play hooky from church. And, uh, you know, I was just teasing him a little bit. And he said, heck no. Never play hooky from church. Why don't you play hooky from church? Because I need it. I'm starved for it. It resets me. 
It renews me. It re-energizes me. As the Psalms say, better is one day in His courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's a different perspective from the current 1.7 times per month equals regular church attendance in the Western Hemisphere. What that means is you probably got a lot of dead people showing up in the church of Jesus Christ. Probably got a lot of goats among the sheep. Probably got a lot of wheat, or a lot of weeds among the wheat. Because if we have no desire for the things of God, we went on to talk, what do you do on vacation? Well, I don't play hooky from church. Even if it's a 15-person church where everybody has the same last name, and all the singing is off-key, and the preaching is less than mediocre, I have to be there. Because a child of God needs breakfast. A child of God needs breakfast. There's a hunger, there's an appetite that you didn't have there before. That's one sign. It's an act of God that recreates us. These words, eternal life, there are two implications there. There's first a duration that's being spoken of, this life that the born-again experience gives. You can't die again after you've been born this way. It's eternal world without end, every day better than the day before, that's your future. It will never get old. It will never expire. But eternal life is not just eternal, it's also life. It's not just duration, it's also quality. And it doesn't start somewhere in the yonder by and by. It starts here and now. From the moment you're reborn, you start skipping. How do we know that we've been born again? There's the Bible, Bible Belt answer, and then there's the Bible answer. The Bible answer is this. I know that I'm born again because I had an experience once. I walked the aisle. I went to youth camp. I asked Jesus in my heart that one time. I even wrote it in a journal. And I even cried. So there's that testimony. And then there's the Bible answer. My whole life is different. My whole perspective and orientation on everything is different since that moment and every day since. I mean, imagine that you're in a conversation with a drunk, and the drunk says, I'm as sober as I've ever… I'm so sober. And you know they're not sober because you can smell the whiskey and you can see it in the behavior. But I am sober. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Well, on what evidence are you sober? Well, 11 years ago, 11 years ago, I went to an AA meeting and didn't take a drink all the next day. And yet, you're still drunk pretty much all the time. That is not the definition of sober. N.T. Wright says, what matters most is not that once upon a time you were born, what matters is that you're alive now and that your present life, day by day and moment by moment, is showing evidence of health and strength and purpose. You don't spend your life talking about the day of your birth. You get on with being the person that you now are. Why? Because you're hungry and you need breakfast every day in ways that you never felt before you were born again. 
What is the first sign of spring when there's new life? It's this. You lose your swag. You know, St. Augustine said that the three most important virtues are humility, humility, and humility. And so here Nicodemus, I'm, I'm moving us to chapter 19 of John's Gospel now. Nicodemus will look at the woman at the well and people of her kind, and now, having been born again, say, we are the same. We're the same. Except you might have a little bit more advantage, and you might have a little bit more privilege, and you might have a little bit more wealth than I. Because you are poised and positioned to receive the kingdom of God in ways that I am not. We are the same. John chapter 19, two powerful, prestigious men ask the governor, because they have access to the governor, can you please give us the body of Jesus, sir? Back then, only women and only slaves would, would, would be called upon to prepare a dead body for burial. This was beneath a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, to touch a dead body, let alone in the light of day. You know, Nicodemus comes at night to, to, to talk with Jesus for fear of losing his reputation. And now in the light of day, he asks the governor, sir, give me the dead body, please. And then he traipses to the grave in front of everybody who he could lose status with, he could lose reputation, he could lose power because of what this would do to a man carrying a dead body to bury it in a tomb. And yet he does it. Two men of high rank would never do this, but Joseph and Nicodemus do. Why? Three reasons. Humility, humility, and humility. Their pride is gone, and they've lost their swag. And they've gained the universe in the process. Tim Keller says, on the one hand, Nicodemus was more courageous, more manly than he'd ever been. On the other, his male pride was gone. His cultural pride was gone. His class pride was gone. He was both bolder and more humble, more courageous and more culturally flexible than he'd ever been before. Why? Because his whole identity had been pulled up, had been tornadoed, had been pulled up and replanted in new soil. That's what being born again looks like. But there's also fruit before the fruit. There's something that has to happen before the humility happens. It's called the fruit of faith, which Ephesians identifies also as a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved, and you've been saved through faith. And even this, referring directly to the word faith, the Greek verb, even this faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's like what John says in John chapter 1, those who are born into the kingdom of God are not born of their own will but of God and the will of God. It is written, the fruit of faith is the gateway to seeing the kingdom of God. And what does faith mean? It means looking to Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus says, as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so, a little bit of uh, Jewish history. Numbers chapter 21 describes an event where many of the people in, in Israel had been afflicted by the venom from poisonous snakes who had bit them, and many were dying, and everybody who had been bitten was afraid, and they're crying out, God help us, God help us. And God responds by saying to Moses, take a stick and carve out, and, uh, carve out a sculpture on the top of that stick of a fiery serpent, a fiery snake, and hold it up, and everybody that looks at that snake will be healed. And that's precisely what happened, and everybody that looked at that snake on a stick was healed. Centuries later, Jesus Christ Himself would also be lifted up on a stick and would become, in that very act of weakness, in that very act of being exploited and discarded, in that very act where men in power are seeking and accomplishing His destruction. He wins the universe. He becomes the seed who crushes the serpent's head. And in that act, as people are looking to Him on that cross, the venom of the serpent is siphoned from the universe and also from you. By His wounds, we are healed. All that is required is to lose your swag and to look toward the king hanging on a big fat stick to siphon the venom out of you. Look to him and believe in what you see. Please pray with me. When I survey the wondrous cross, when I look at the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain, my power, my morals, my sophistication, my wealth, my richest gain, my good name, my richest gain, I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, a life with duration and a life with quality. May it be so. In Christ's name, amen.